What's wrong with the six counties? There are two distinct peoples in Ireland who see and define themselves differently and antagonistically. The Catholic Irish-Irish nationalists and the Protestant British-Irish unionists. Ireland, which had been ruled by England since the 12th century, was partitioned in 1920-21 into six and 26 counties entities. The border dividing the six and 26 counties does not coincide or even approximate to the geographical location between the two distinct Irish peoples or identities. It cuts right through them. There is a large Catholic nationalist population in Belfast, but broadly the Protestant Unionists are concentrated in the northeast of the six counties, while large areas along the border with the 26 counties, amounting to about half the six county territory, are heavily Catholic nationalist. This was so in 1921 and now, as a result of population movements, it is more so than ever. These are the central, all-shaping facts about Ireland, and specifically Northern Ireland. They are the reason why the Northern Six-County Substate in 1969 broke down into the beginning of civil war, which the British Army smothered. The goals of an independent and a united Ireland have, for the last 150 years, proved incompatible. The independence demanded by the Catholic national majority implied not a united Ireland, but a partition Ireland. A united Ireland implied continuity with Britain, or at best only a very limited form of Irish home rule. Partition was not the result of a democratic agreement between Catholic Nationalist and Protestant Unionist Ireland to organise their coexistence as best they could. The unviable six-county entity was imposed by an alliance of Irish Protestant Unionists and the British imperialist government. This was a Liberal Tory coalition government, with the Liberal Lloyd George as Prime Minister, but consisting overwhelmingly of Tory Unionists. Identifying very strongly with the Protestant Unionists of Northern Ireland, they worked to win as much for them as the British state could impose on Catholic Nationalist Ireland. Partition was imposed by war and the threat of escalated war. The British Prime Minister threatened the representatives of Catholic Nationalist Ireland Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith and others, that if they did not accept what Britain was offering, the result would be a renewal of war, of immediate and terrible war, between Nationalist Ireland and Britain. It is known now that Britain has contingency plans to do in Ireland what had been done to the Boers of South Africa two decades earlier. In turn, much of the Catholic population who sustained the guerrilla fighters against the British occupation forces. In the UK general election of November 1918, the Republican Party, Sinn Féin, headed by survivors of the 1916 Dublin Easter Rising, won approximately three quarters of the Irish seats. It had asked for a mandate for its elected MPs to secede from the London Parliament and set up an Irish Parliament in Dublin. It did that in January 1919, declaring Ireland a republic. A war for independence followed. From January 1919 to July 1921, that war was fought by an Irish guerrilla army on one side and British forces acting as an army of occupation on the other. The British forces behaved as such forces have always behaved when faced with a hostile population and guerrilla soldiers indistinguishable from the rest of the population. They committed atrocities, shooting at random, killing captured prisoners, hanging POWs and so on. The partition imposed on the Catholic nationalist Irish people drew the dividing line between the two islands arbitrarily to give maximum advantage to the Protestant Unionists. 
About a third of the six county population then was Catholic nationalist, and they were the majority in about half the six county territories. That part of the six county population felt themselves to be a conquered people, and their areas along the border to be British-occupied Ireland. Against the Catholic nationalist demand for self-determination for the people of Ireland from the mid-19th century, Irish and British opponents of Home Rule had argued that if democratic principle entitled the Catholic nationalist Irish majority to Home Rule separate from the majority of the UK, then in logic and in justice, the Irish Protestant minority could demand Home Rule from the Irish majority. Practically, this might encounter difficulties. Where was the dividing line? But logically and politically, it was irrefutable. Catholic nationalist arguments against it revolved around denial that the North East population was a distinct people. They argued from selective history. Hadn't the Protestant people of the North East led the Irish nationalist movement for independence at the time of the French Revolution, the United Irishmen, and so on? All such arguments counted for nothing against the obdurate facts that the North East Ulster population now were not at one with the Irish majority, that they saw themselves as a distinct people and proclaimed their readiness to go to war to resist being put in a home rule Ireland under Catholic nationalist majority rule. Partition became an issue again because in their 1909-10 conflict with the House of Lords on the budget, the Asquith Liberals lost their own majority in the House of Commons and came to depend for a majority on the Irish Home Rule Party. There was now a Liberal and Home Rule Party majority in the London Parliament in favour of Home Rule, and the House of Lords no longer had an absolute veto on decisions of the House of Commons. The proposed Irish Home Rule state would not give Ireland independence. The proposed Dublin government would have very limited powers. Even so, Irish Protestants rejected it, organised their own army, the Ulster Volunteer Force, to resist Home Rule and prepared to set up their own Ulster government if the London Parliament tried to put them under a Dublin Parliament. The Tory party openly supported the Protestant rebels. The Tory MP, Edward Carson, led the Irish Protestant movement. The Tory leader, Andrew Bonalore, proclaimed the right of the Irish Unionists to revolt against London and Dublin. Their cause, he insisted, was just. A Liberal majority at Westminster could not change that. There are things stronger than parliamentary majorities, the Tory leader insisted, and set about proving it. The Six-County Option In 1914, both the Liberal Government and the Irish Nationalist Home Rule Party, faced with the Six-County Unionists' preparation for armed revolt against London and Dublin, accepted partition. There were three possible options for partition, differing radically in the amount of territory the Protestant Unionist entity would have. These would separate either four, six or nine of the existing counties from Home Rule Ireland and Dublin Rule. Division by county was a very crude tool. For example, Derry City, a place of great historical and symbolic importance to Protestant Ireland, has a big Catholic majority, is two miles from the border with the 26 counties, but is in a heavily Protestant Unionist county, Londonderry, yet it was in terms of counties that partition was discussed. A four counties partition would involve North East Ireland, where Protestant Unionists were the compact majority. In this entity there would still be Catholics, and Belfast most notably, but the overwhelming majority were Protestant Unionists. A nine county option would include the whole province of Ulster, 
and Protestants would be only a bare majority there. Those who imposed partition did so in the name of securing Protestant Unionist rights against the Irish Catholic Nationalist majority. They rejected the Nine Counties option because the Protestant majority would be small and possibly precarious. They rejected the Four County option because it would give the Protestant area too little territory and involve the loss of important towns such as Newry and Armagh. A Six County option would still include a big Catholic majority, one in three them, but also a Protestant Unionist two-thirds majority. That is what they finally chose. The Catholic Nationalist leaders of the time, the Home Rule Party, called a convention of Ulster, Nine County, Catholic Nationalists early in 1914 and persuaded them to assent to partition as a temporary measure, believing that the six and 26 counties would soon be reunited. Catholics were a bigger proportion of the six-county population than the Protestants of the whole island were of the total population. In 1921, after the 1916 Rising, the 1918 election won by Republicans, the secession of Doyle Ram, the proclamation of an Irish Republic in January 1919, and the Anglo-Irish War that followed, Britain conceded to Dublin not the limited home rule over all Ireland that had been contemplated in 1914, but the fullest measure of independence then available within the British Empire, dominion status, such as Australia, Canada and other states had but only for 26 counties. The Irish nationalist leaders agreed to that as a temporary measure, under great pressure and, as we saw, the threat of a renewed war from the British forces still occupying the whole of Ireland. The injustice of a partition involving six counties was recognised by Britain. It was stipulated that a boundary commission made up of London, Belfast and Dublin government representatives would meet to redraw the boundaries. In logic and injustice, That would mean that Dublin would get the Catholic majority territory along the border, thus reducing the nationalist state to the Protestant Unionist heartlands, in effect to the four-county option. The Catholic nationalist leaders saw the inclusion of such a large minority of Catholics and of Catholic majority territory in the six counties as ultimately to their advantage. Things could not settle down in the Protestant state with this issue unresolved. They saw the decision which they expected from the Boundary Commission as a future bargaining tool with which to promote a united Ireland. They thought the removal of the Catholic areas would render the Northern Protestant state unviable and push things towards Irish reunification. During the negotiations in late 1921, the British government encouraged the Catholic nationalist leaders to think that. At the same time, they told the Northern Irish leaders that what they had under the 6-26 county partition they would be able to hold, and hold it they did. A high degree of coercion was necessary to impose partition on the Catholic majority areas of Northern Ireland. From the beginning, an apparatus of coercion over the Catholics was a necessary feature of the Northern state. Protestant Unionist special paramilitary police forces were set up to contain the Catholics. Repression of Catholics would be a feature of six-county life until the six-county state broke down into near civil war 50 years later in 1968-9. All sections of Catholic Nationalist Ireland ruled out attempting to coerce the Northern Unionists into a united Ireland. They believed that an attempt at coercion against the six-county Protestants could at most move the border north and east, with the Catholic majority territory becoming part of the Catholic state and the four-county option as a hard, impermeable Protestant Unionist state.
Those controlling the Dublin government, Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith, ruled out coercion. The Republicans who opposed the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty and who would soon fight a year-long civil war against the Dublin government, 1922-23, also ruled it out. The major point of conflict in the debate in doyle Iran in December 1921 and January 1922 on the Treaty with England centred on such things as the Oath of Allegiance to the King of England, then required under the British Empire, of which the new Irish state was to be a part. Northern Ireland did not become a central issue. When the Boundary Committee met in 1925, the British and Protestant representatives ganged up on the Dublin representatives led by the great Gaelic scholar and disastrous nationalist politician, Owen McNeill. They proposed only a small secession of territory by Dublin to Belfast. Some millions of pounds were given to Dublin as compensation, and McNeill returned to Dublin, proclaiming that he had made a good bargain. The Catholics boycotted the institutions of the six-county state. The Unionist rulers saw the Catholics as a disloyal, permanent threat, they created a Protestant sectarian special police to control them and they gerrymandered local election boundaries, even where, in Derry City for example, the Catholic Nationalists were a big majority, they only got a minority of council seats. The Unionist rulers systematically discriminated against Catholics in jobs. They discriminated against Catholics in the allocation of social housing, a restrictive local government franchise which Britain had abandoned continued in Northern Ireland so that a council house also meant a council vote. Two parallel societies existed in the six counties. Politics in Northern Ireland became a matter of sectarian head counting. Each community had its own political catch cries, its own ethnic sectarian account of Irish history. Catholic church insistence on running Catholic schools for Catholics meant that from early childhood the communities were segregated. Political parties, except the Communist Party, and in some periods, the Northern Ireland Labour Party, were sectarian entities, in which not only sectarian politicians, but also Protestant and Catholic priests thronged. The Belfast government had only limited home rule. The convention came to be that the London Parliament, which legally held the supreme power in Belfast, did not discuss Northern Irish affairs. The six-county Protestant Unionists were left to rule in their own way. Majority rule there was Protestant sectarian rule. One-party unionist rule. For half a century, until London abolished the Belfast Parliament in March 1972, there was one-party unionist sectarian government. IRA paramilitary activity in Northern Ireland was feeble, ineffective and counterproductive, serving only to justify repression of Catholics. The IRA border campaign of 1956-62 consisted entirely of raids from the South on military and police targets in the six counties. What became the mass Catholic base of the war which the Provisional IRA launched in March 1971 was aroused in the late mid-1960s when the first large-scale political mobilisation of Catholics in the history of the six counties as a Catholic civil rights movement. Catholics demanded equality with Protestants, an end to boundary manipulation in elections and anti-Catholic discrimination in housing and employment. At first they secured the support of Protestant trade unionists and students for Catholic equality. It was a generation of Catholics that had grown up in the welfare state created by the 1945 Labour government. Some of them who had a university education emerged as leaders. They said they wanted one man, sick, one job, one man, one house, one man, 
one vote, and British standards in Northern Ireland. Some of the civil rights leaders proclaimed themselves no less hostile to the Green Tories who ruled the South than to the Orange Tories who ruled in the six counties. The most prominent leaders were socialists, some of them Marxists. The Catholic civil rights movement was inspired by the civil rights movement of black people in the USA and modelled on it to a great extent. They sang US civil rights movement songs on demonstrations such as We Shall Overcome. The main behind-the-scenes organisers of the civil rights movement were Northern Irish Stalinists, people who held leading positions in the Northern Irish Labour movement and Stalinist Republicans. The IRA and the Republican movement was then under Stalinist and quasi-Stalinist control. The Republicans saw the civil rights movement as the preliminary to a new movement for a united Ireland. The leading Stalinist Republican then, Dr Roy Johnston, later publicly testified to that. In fact, however, they did not need to manipulate things in that direction. The logic of the situation did it for them. The root civil right which the Northern Irish Catholics lacked was self-determination. Their lack of everything else they demanded, one man, sick, one vote, etc., flowed from their lack of that right, from their position as second-class citizens in the Protestant state. The whole logic of a Catholic mobilisation for civil rights inescapably pointed to a re-raising of the national question. And the fact that the Catholics were an artificial minority who then saw no hope of ever being a six-counties majority pointed inexorably to IRA militarism. It was not the leaders of the civil rights movement who first raised the question of partition. The Republicans and Stalinists in the civil rights movement thought the time as yet unripe for it. Other socialists, in the main sympathisers of the international socialists, the name of the SWP then, did not want to raise it at all. They proclaimed that there could be no talk of a united Ireland under Dublin Green Tory rule, not before Ireland became socialist. It were sections of the Protestant establishment and fringe Protestant militants, such as the Reverend Ian Paisley then was, who saw the logic of the civil rights movement and inferred that there was a hidden, conspiratorial, nationalist and republican purpose to it. They roused a strong Protestant backlash against the civil rights movement. That shaped what happened next. The Northern Ireland Home Secretary, William Craig, banned a civil rights march in Derry. When the ban was defied, he set baton flailing police on to the demonstrators. The TV camera's pictures of the West Belfast MP, Jerry Fitt, being battened to the ground went around the world and broke the embargo on British involvement in the internal affairs of Northern Ireland. Civil rights marches continued. On the streets, Paisleyite counter-demonstrations attacked civil rights marches. In the first eight months of 1969, clashes between civil rights activists and Paisleyites and between civil rights activists and police multiplied. On the 12th of August 1969, the Northern Ireland state began to break down into war. Serious fighting erupted in Derry between members of the elite Orange Order, the Apprentice Boys, other Orangemen and police on one side, and, on the other, Catholic youths objecting to the traditional Orange March around the walls of the city. Barricades were thrown up at the entrance to the Catholic ghetto, the Bogside. The Catholics repelled the massed ranks of Orangemen and armed police who tried to invade, using stones and petrol bombs. After two days of that, fighting erupted in Belfast, where Catholics were then in the minority, and not as in Derry, the majority. Catholic streets were set on fire and their residents driven out. 
It was the beginning of what was then the greatest population movement in Europe since the aftermath of the Second World War. It was the start of erupting civil war. On the 15th of August, the British army was sent in to take control of Belfast and Derry and put an end to the fighting. British non-interference in the internal affairs of the six counties was at an end. The British army would play a central role in Northern Ireland for the next 35 years. The British army operation on the streets of Northern Ireland formally ended on the 31st of July 2007. The soldiers were welcomed by the Catholics, by those for whom, as for many generations before them, Britain was the traditional great enemy. Catholic leaders called for the abolition of the six-county majority rule and for direct rule from London. Behind the scenes, senior British civil servants were sent to supervise the running of Northern Ireland. Barricades remained up in Catholic Belfast and Derry. British soldiers with rifles and machine guns posted on one side, Catholics armed with hurlies and clubs on the other, friendly but wary and suspicious. A commission of inquiry under Lord Hunt had been set up in response to earlier violent clashes to inquire into the reasons for the breakdown of law and order. The Hunt Commission reported in October 1969, proposing the abolition of the Protestant Special Police, the B-Specials, the disarming of the RUC, and reforms to eliminate the grievances of the civil rights movement. Protestant outrage at the British government's accept of Hunt's recommendations led to a running gun battle between Protestants and the British Army in the Protestant heartland of Belfast's Shankill Road. The Catholic barricades came down peacefully. British Home Secretary Jim Callaghan was welcomed enthusiastically when he visited Catholic Belfast and Derry. A deceptive period of calm followed. An IRA scarcely existed then. It was no more than a rump, controlled by Stalinist intent on moving it away from its traditional reliance on physical force on principle and refusal to sit in parliaments. The IRA had proved helpless to defend the Catholics in mid-August. Now the backlash of traditional Republicans against the Stalinists split the IRA and Sinn Féin. It led in December 1969 to January 1970 to the establishment of a breakaway, which called itself Provisional IRA and Provisional Sinn Féin. An official IRA in Sinn Féin, Stalinist controlled, remained active for much of the 1970s. The Provisionals were devoutly Catholic, politically primitive, physical force on principle, traditional Republicans. They preferred for an offensive war. Early in 1971, they started shooting British soldiers and setting off bombs in northern Irish towns and cities, often with much carnage. The polarisation between Catholics and Protestants now again reached near civil war level, kept under simmering control by the British Army. As the logic of sectarian communal civil war worked itself through, the extremes on both sides set the pace and the tenor of politics. They gained military control in their communities. Protestant workers who had supported civil rights and Catholic equality within the six counties now began to feel themselves threatened with conquest and forced incorporation into an Irish Catholic state. Belfast shipyard workers marched to demand internment, that is, imprisonment on suspicion of IRA membership without charge or trial, as a means of fighting the IRA. In August 1971, the introduction of internment, exclusively for Catholics, proved to be more petrol on the fire, lining up Catholics en masse behind the IRA. The killings of soldiers and RUC people and the bombings escalated. The
The Ulster Defence Association developed as an open legal organisation with a large-scale Protestant underground movement which assassinated Catholics picked at random or because of suspicion of IRA membership. Hundreds of Catholics died at their hands. This was Catholic-Protestant sectarian civil war, half smothered and regulated by the British Army. The British Army was by no means impartial. The IRA was their central enemy, and the Protestant militias loosely, if independently, on their side. The army, police and intelligence services often colluded with the Orange Underground against their common enemy. Even so, the British Army and the RUC moderated and stifled the Catholic-Protestant civil war and prevented it from escalating into large-scale massacres and mass ethnic cleansing, as distinct from the butchery and limited-scale ethnic cleansing which did occur on both sides. In March 1972, Britain abolished Protestant-majority rule in the six counties. London openly assumed the control it had begun to assume behind the scenes since August 1969. Protestant workers in Belfast struck and marched in protest. It was recognition that the six counties was, as a nationalist politician put it, a failed entity. Protestant home rule, to secure which Ireland had been partitioned into two states, had proved to be sectarian Protestant rule, and had at the end led to the breakdown into Catholic-Protestant civil war that even the British army could not entirely suppress or control. Before World War I, the Protestants had gained a veto on all Ireland's home rule. Now the Northern Ireland Catholics had gained a veto on Protestant Unionist rule in the six counties. Instead of recognising that the six counties, whose existence created a second Catholic, artificially created Irish minority, which recreated the minority-majority problem on the island within the six counties on a smaller scale and with the minority and majority roles artificially reversed. Instead of tackling the problem at its roots, Britain, with the active collaboration and support of Dublin, set out to reform the six counties. A statelet designed to let Protestants rule was to be reformed in such a way as to abolish majority rule and in its place put institutional power sharing, guaranteed by law, between Catholic and Protestant parties. In the 47 years since majority Protestant home rule was abolished, stable power sharing has, again and again, proved an impossible task. The 2017 collapse of the power sharing government in Belfast is only the latest in a long list of failures. In March 1973, a referendum was held in Northern Ireland. Join the United Ireland or stay in the UK. Republicans boycotted it. An overwhelming majority voted for staying in the UK. Sunningdale Agreement, 1973. In late 1973, the first attempt at power sharing was agreed upon by Northern Irish political leaders and by London and Dublin. The Sunningdale Agreement. The moderate Protestant and Catholic politicians would share power. Britain would ensure that only power-sharing governments could rule Northern Ireland. There would be a Council of Ireland, loosely linking Dublin and Belfast. Caught between the communal conflict and British pressure for reform, the once monolithic Ulster Unionist Party shattered into fragments. Some tried to do Britain's bidding, others said they would die to defend Protestant majority rule. Large numbers of Protestant workers began to support Ian Paisley's Democratic Unionist Party. Paisley was a long-time and sometimes populist critic of the Unionist Orange establishment. An election in which the pre-March 1972 Northern Irish Prime Minister, Brian Faulkner, seemed to promise not to share power with Catholics, 
produced a power-sharing majority in a new Belfast Assembly, with Faulkner as Prime Minister and SDLP leader Jerry Fitt as Faulkner's deputy. That government would last five months. Though a majority of Protestant Assembly members were Faulknerites and in favour of power-sharing, their electors considered them tricksters and turncoat traitors. In February 1974, an unscheduled British general election allowed outraged Protestants to express their feelings. Of the then 12 Northern Irish seats at Westminster, 11 were won by opponents of power-sharing. The exception was West Belfast, held by Jerry Fitt. The moral and political position of the Faulknerites was fatally undermined. An attempt to activate the clause in the Sunningdale Agreement, stipulating that a Council of Ireland would be set up, triggered an Orange General Strike in May 1974. UDA coercion played an important part in getting it going, but then it gained its own momentum. After nine days, the government resigned. Power sharing was dead. Britain now decided to set up an elected constitutional assembly. The people of Northern Ireland were asked to choose representatives who would thrash out a constitution acceptable to both Protestants and Catholics within the artificial framework of the six counties. The Faulkner Unionists were wiped out in the election to this new assembly. The Constitutional Assembly dragged on for a year, with the IRA on ceasefire for most of it, but agreement was not possible. The Orange politicians would not have power sharing and a Council of Ireland. They would not even have voluntary, as distinct from statutory, power sharing. When the former Northern Ireland Home Secretary, William Craig, leader of a strong quasi-fascist movement, Vanguard, proposed voluntary power sharing, his standing as a prominent Orange Unionist leader was destroyed. Britain finally shut down the Constitutional Assembly. The next sustained attempt to set up power sharing government would not come until after the Good Friday Agreement, 22 years later. The Provisional IRA resumed its war. The British Labour government began to take back the de facto status as political prisoners which jailed IRA members had won in the early 1970s. Refusing to wear prison uniform, IRA prisoners spent years naked except for blankets. In 1981, ten of them were allowed to starve to death, seeking political prisoner status. The tremendous Catholic support for the prisoners which the hunger strike generated led Sinn Féin to stand one of the hunger strikers, Bobby Sands, for a parliamentary seat in a by-election, which he won. The hunger striker, who went on fasting, died a member of the British Parliament. From that experience grew a new IRA Sinn Féin policy of combining politics with war, the Armalite rifle in one hand and the ballot in the other, as they expressed it. In November 1985, an Anglo-Irish agreement was signed, which gave Dublin a direct political say, though not executive power, in the running of Northern Ireland. A sharp Protestant backlash failed to remove it. During the Long War, the IRA evolved politically. They became mildly left-wing. Slowly, they moved away from some of the dogmas of physical force on principle, republicanism. When they decided in 1986 to take seats they might win in the Dublin Doileran, the founding leaders of the IRA, Rory Brady, David O'Connell and others, split off to form the Continuity IRA. The war continued. Secret talks between the British government and the IRA with the SDLP leader John Hume, a member of this quasi-secret Catholic cult, Opus Dei, a sponsor and broker, led the IRA to a ceasefire in August 1994. 
Though it broke down for a while in Britain, Canary Wharf and the centre of Manchester were blasted, the ceasefire held in Northern Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement followed four years later, on the 10th of April 1998. The Good Friday Agreement differed from Sunningdale in that it was not to be power sharing by some of the political parties, but mandatory power sharing between all of them. Where Sunningdale had relied on the centre against the extremes, the Good Friday Agreement looked essentially to agreement between the extremes. A central consideration of the Sinn Féin IRA in agreeing to the Good Friday Agreement was the belief that the Catholics would, because of a greater natural increase, outbreed the Protestants and, within a decade or two, be the majority in the six counties. Then the Good Friday Agreement would commit Britain to hold a referendum and to comply with the wishes of a majority should it vote for a united Ireland. The absurdity of the six counties and of the political system of juggling an artificially demarcated Catholic minority and a Protestant majority is even more clear if we contemplate such an eventuality. When a six-county majority wants United Ireland, as the decisive majority in the island once wanted Home Rule and then an independent republic, will the Protestants, reduced to a minority in the six counties, accept it? That is one of the questions posed by Brexit. The Protestant minority on the island may proclaim that their own identity is more important than a democratic majority dominated by people of a different national identity. The democratic response is a programme for a federal united Ireland with autonomy for the Protestant North East.